Hey everyone, this is Ian from The Mission. We have a really cool episode for you today where we go deep into the book Zero to One. This is actually one of our episodes of The Mission Book Club, which we do every month where we look into a new book. This month, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. We go deep dive into the first half of the book. Chad and I talk to fans, we answer questions, and we kind of talk about generally things that we find interesting that might not be talked about in the public Twitter sphere and other places. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, we're live. That's it. Hey, what's up, everyone? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Today's book club is about Zero to One, a book by Peter Thiel. Uh, I think the subtitle is Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Thanks for tuning in. Um, And let's... Yeah, just kick this off. I don't know. So Founders Fund, which is Peter Thiel's investment firm, they're an investor in the mission. So just full disclosure there, we're, uh, we're pretty biased. We were big fans. Um, and we actually were hanging out with those folks this weekend. Uh, so this is Zero to One is a book that we've studied closely. Um, and we're going to be pretty biased in support of that. So just take that into account. And I think, I think one of the first episodes of the Mission Daily, I forget which one, but we talked about secrets and we actually referenced Zero to One. Part of the reason that we're doing the podcast here today is that we got a lot of good feedback on that episode and people wanted to talk more about Zero to One, kind of share some of their thoughts. Um, We were interviewing uh, the CEO of a biosensor technology company who offhandedly mentioned on Friday that he had just read Zero to One. And I was like, huh, well, we have the perfect, uh, perfect book club episode for you. But this is a book that I think We've definitely, like Chad said, studied at length, and we have some insights that are maybe a little different than some other stuff that we've seen out there um, and wanted to, to share those with the audience and how we think about companies and what what Peter wrote and ultimately what Blake Masters transcribed. And for those of those of you who don't know... And help write. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, transcribe and write. For those of you who don't know, so Peter taught a class at Stanford. What was the name of that? CS183. Yeah, CS183. And these, so basically he was teaching all this stuff to Stanford students. And was it undergrad or? Uh, Yeah, it's an undergrad. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, And so he was um, sharing all these thoughts. And one of the students, Blake Masters, was like, took really good notes. Put them online. They did really, really well. And that's what led to the creation of the book. Um, they had a great proof of concept and people were really excited about it. So they uh, spun that out into an entire book. And for anybody that's interested in going even deeper, the class notes don't, um, they're not quite as condensed as zero to one is as a book. So if you're interested in any of these topics and want to uh, enter that proverbial rabbit hole, that's the place to start. So should we kick this off? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, you know, we mentioned that we're going to cover some different perspectives on zero to one because it's a book that's been covered pretty extensively by traditional uh, online new media. And a lot of people have talked about it. Um, So on page one of the book and and in chapter one, uh, Peter starts off the book by saying that one of his favorite interview questions that he usually asks people is what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And Ian, do you want to just talk about that for a second? Yeah. So this is something that I had never you know, heard of before a few years ago. Definitely they don't talk about this in the military. Um, (laughs) But uh, it was something that when you first read the book, 
And in the first chapter, Peter is already challenging you to go do your own self-discovery. Like essentially the first chapter is not actually telling you to read the rest of the book. The first chapter is telling you, go find a truth that you believe that very few people believe. And that's a pretty cool idea for the first chapter of your book is like, he doesn't explicitly say, don't read this, but as many things that he talks about in the book, it's a challenge. Yeah. Peter does not explicitly tell people things. He implies them and lets you figure it out on your own. And this was something that like when I first read the book, I I remember I was sitting on an airplane and I like paused my Kindle version. I was like, I need to make a list of things that I believe. And I even like asked my, I asked my girlfriend, I asked like my family, I asked other people like things that I usually talk about that people are think are kind of like weird or, or uninteresting or like not relevant or stuff that they just generally don't think are true. And I think that to start out a book like this and say, that companies are built by the founders finding a secret that they believe that other people don't agree with them on is just really novel and a cool thought experiment for anyone who's who's listening or who haven't who hasn't actually like done that before. It really is. And so let's start immediately and jump into what that question really means and what it's designed to do, which is something that I have not heard anywhere online. If you found it somewhere else before, I invite you to share that here. But the purpose of that question is to gauge um, two very important things, an individual's imagination and an individual's courage. So uh, imagination, ideas, uh, people who are very sure of themselves or maybe even are really smart. There are a lot of people like that, fortunately. Um, But unfortunately, there aren't as many people that have uh, courage. And the courage component is a part of that question because a correct or Uh, exciting or promising answer to that question is one that the person asking it might not agree with. In fact, it might challenge some of their worldviews. So not only are those components baked into the question, but there's also a lot of um, humility baked into that question. So just by the nature of asking that, in a sense, it's kind of honoring the person you're talking to, because right off the bat, you're saying there are things that you know, that you believe that might be incredibly valuable and true and I think that you you could know those things. I think that you could figure them out. So in a really cool way, this question does a lot with a very small amount of uh, text and, and, and words. And what's ex- you know exciting about that with the rest of the book as well is you know that's the basically the, the purpose of the book is to uh, talk more about technology, which Peter defines as the ability to do more with less, or technology is any process or systems that allow us to accomplish more with less effort. And really the book is his explanation of many of those truths. The idea of saying, and we don't need to jump in this right this second, but the idea of positioning monopolies as the thing that you're striving for is already something that is completely contrarian to the rest of the business world. And just to add quickly here, um, so Peter's not an advocate of uh, monopolies that last forever but he's a very big proponent of temporary monopolies where you have a rule of law, where the monopoly is um, gained in as voluntarily and as peaceful a way as possible. And it can sound like a scary word, but in fact, monopoly is something that we have all around us. So if you have a good idea, if you start a business, uh, if you file a trademark or if you file a patent, you're actually getting a temporary license to a monopoly on something for a specified period of time. So this isn't something to be fearful of. This isn't something to, to worry about too much. 
Uh, in fact, it's something that um, really values individuals and imagination and creativity and courage. So this is something that it sounds scary on the surface, but that's only in a world where nothing changes, where there aren't new monopolies, where people aren't free to create new monopolies and most importantly, create them in new markets. And I just posted to the group, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Um, and it, you know, people can share that, they can DM us that if they don't feel comfortable sharing it. But to start thinking about that for yourself, you can share with the group or not, totally your call. Um, like I said, you can send it to us afterwards. You can tag at the Mission HQ on Twitter or whatever. But um, yeah, feel free to, to start thinking about those things. Start asking people. And just generally, if there's one takeaway from this entire book that- It's going to be so valuable to any, anybody listening. Yeah, that is extremely valuable. It's just start doing that. Because once you start looking at those things, that is how like exponential technologies are, are built. And that's how- um, that's how you can take something from zero to one. So let's let's talk about like the title of the book for a second, zero to one. Um, Chad, what is what is he talking about with that? And and why is this important? Yeah. So the idea of uh, going from zero to one is about it's um, just a quick reference to creating something new. So if you go from zero where nothing exists and you end up at one, you have something new um, or you can go from one to N, which is taking something that already exists and then spreading it and figuring out how to distributed it everywhere. So if we think about um, you know, creativity and new things, that's going from zero to one. If we think about uh, globalization or spreading existing things around the world, that's going from one to N. The problem that we're starting to run into with going from one to N is that's what is easiest for large corporations and nation states and things like that to do. And the problem being that if you know everyone in uh, India or China wants to live the life of an average uh, American, which I, I hope they can. I hope that happens actually as quickly as possible, but not if they're not, you know, if we're able to create the technology, the zero to one type inventions as quickly as possible, because, you know, we don't have the energy consumption or the resources, unfortunately, for that to happen. So this is why going from zero to one is so important, because if we really want to eradicate poverty and lift everyone up, and diseases, things like that, we have to go from zero to one in many cases because we don't have the energy or the resources to just continue to go from one to end, even though that's easier. Yeah. And I think that when he is talking about globalization and spreading that stuff to the rest of the world, like originally all of these products before they were globalized were created and, you know, went from went from zero to one. And they don't happen, an important point is they, they don't happen synonymously. So there's not, I explain this, like there's not um, how there are periods where like things are being created and then there's globalization and how all of that is, is kind of like not at the same time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And um, there's some charts and things like that, which if you've read the book, you've seen that it's much easier to talk about these things with charts. Um, and yeah, we'll make sure we get those up here. Uh, and have, can have access to the screen so you can see what we're seeing uh, next time. So I think, you know, like just moving along, we just kind of like go through the book in chronological order here. Um, chapter two of the book is, uh, yeah, really cool take on the uh, internet bubble in the United States. Wait, and, hold on really quick. Yeah, yeah just one thing I want to do. The idea, his definition of a, of a startup and how having like the startup mindset mindset piece is really important because I think like we're starting to see this in, like the world, but also specifically, obviously in America, where this idea of things like Shark Tank and all these things where you can 
actually build something, you can get it created, you can get it into the market and have people buying it. And it's not happening in the company that you in. Like if you work for like Bechtel or whatever, and you want to create whatever, a new product that does something, some technology, like you're not going to create that at Bechtel, right? In most cases. So you're going to need to figure out a way to do that with a group of people. And you need to find the people that want to build that technology and get that out into the world. And the idea of, you know, he defines a startup as a startup is the largest group of people you can convince of a plan to build a different future. And again, this is really important because you don't have to do a startup. You don't have to do a business. This is just convincing and starting to sell people on the idea of a better future. So this can you can apply this today when uh, everyone starts to plan what they're going to do this weekend and you hear the ideas and they're horrible. Well, chances are that's a group of people that you can convince of a better future or a better idea. And starting in those very small increments and local cases is a great way to start practicing a lot of the philosophies and ideas from the book. Yeah. And that's like a really important point that you don't actually have to build the business first. Like you don't have to sit there and do like a business plan or profit and loss or something like that. These are literally just uh, skills and mental operating, you know, ways to upgrade your mental operating system, um, kind of adjust your mindset. So you're always looking for opportunity and you're kind of like priming yourself to be courageous uh, and imaginative instead of just, um, you know, going along with whatever's easiest. Chapter two. Chapter two, party like it's 1999. So if you're, for everybody listening, if you're familiar with the uh, internet bubble, it was a time of uh, great optimism and hubris. And uh, fortunately for the, I guess, or or not fortunately, it kind of uh, left a bad taste in many people's mouth about technology companies and the internet and if radical change and a better future was possible. And this is a, a different look at what happened in the internet bubble from someone who was there and someone who was building a venture company that was successful. Um, not in their original mission and their goal, but they were very financially successful and they exited. So they returned money to investors. And that company we're talking about is PayPal, which uh, Peter famously um, founded a startup uh, called Confinity with Max Levechkin. And then they ended up merging it with Elon's company, X.com, became PayPal. And they uh, IPO'd, sold it to eBay, and it worked out really well. Uh, And then there are just tons and tons of lessons to draw from that where you know, bubbles are what we call things in retrospect. And that's, those are what we call financial trends that get a little crazy in retrospect. But in the moment, there are a lot of people that were in Silicon Valley. Uh, Peter just talks about how they didn't see anything wrong. They didn't see anything wrong with the idea that you might um, plan an IPO from your bedroom floor before you even talked about what the company would do. And that sounds crazy, but that's a lot of what was going on at the time. And I think as you look at one of the things, one of the threads from his time at PayPal that is so unique and leads us to the fourth chapter is the ideology of competition. X.ai, or X.com, sorry. Different (laughs) different product. X.com and Confinity were competitors. So Elon Musk's company and Peter Thiel's company were competitors. They were literally in the same building and they yeah. didn't even know it. They were, I yeah. think, one floor above each other. And the sa- they had the same address, except I think one was like A and one was B or something like that. Something crazy. Um, and they were technically competitors. They ended up merging. And what happened was this really unique situation where 
Elon kind of checked his ego a little bit, still stayed involved. A lot of times that doesn't happen. And they turned PayPal into a very successful company. And then Peter has this idea of competition, which is, this is another truth that he believes that most people don't agree with. It's like competition is like war. And in every other instance, it's completely destructive. Like everything in business is all about competition. And everything that gravitates towards competition is just going to be less and less fun for all parties involved. Uh, Whereas if you find out some secrets and if you find out ways to not compete and actually avoid competition, that is the uh, the conscientious path. That's the path of um, good in the world, in a sense. And it's, you know, sometimes you can take what's working already and make it better to the point where it is something new. Um, but endlessly copying something leads to a bunch of competition and it only leads to technologies that go from one to N, which is, again, what we talked about, isn't sustainable in the long term. So seeking out the frontiers of new industries or emerging industries, that's where there's going to be a lot of opportunity. There's going to be less competition. So a lot of people, when they hear competition, they think of capitalism, um, which is, you know, a rough definition might be the accumulation of capital when you're providing a service. Uh, But capitalism and competition are, they're not uh, synonyms, actually. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're opposites um, because you can't accumulate capital if you have perfect competition. Uh, Perfect competition um, all profits get competed away. And if all profits get competed away, if you have a new idea, if you have a new invention, you're never going to be able to capture any of the value from that invention. And that's why shows, I mean, a lot of people want to hate on Shark Tank and stuff. Shows like that are incredibly important because for the first, this is literally like for the first time in history, people who have had the ideas or who have had the courage to bring them forth, get to capture some of that value. That's brand new. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and in other in other countries, that's not the case. If you come forward with a good idea, there's uh, you know a government's going to come knock on your door and say, uh, "We're so excited that the government has decided to acquire this <laughs> this new technology." Yeah. You don't have any say in the matter. Um, so what we have going on here, whether it's in Silicon Valley or thankfully in every other city and, and startup hub around America right now, is people are uh, allowed and free for the first time in history almost to capture value from what they create or what they work so hard to build. And that's just really, really exciting. Well, I'd say it's in a way that's democratized, for lack of a better word, democratized um, because the knowledge is there now. Like, I, and this is, remember those commercials where it'd be like, have an idea, like, oh, and it was like <laughs> a caveman, like sitting like the yeah, thinker. Yeah, help. Yeah, invent yeah. help. Thank you. Um, the, have we said this before? We might've said this on the Mission no. Daily. We haven't? Okay. I don't think we've talked about um, Yeah, this idea that it was like, I remember sitting those, watching those when I was like, whatever, a, a kid watching those commercials on TV and just kind of thinking like, man, I could call, I have an idea. And you can, everyone always had the, you know, crazy uncle or whatever it is, or that was always like, oh, I had an idea for this. I had an idea for this. And it was kind of always like pie in the sky. And, oh, maybe you call vent help or whatever it is. But now literally our heroes on TV are people who are building something, have an impact. They didn't it's call a- event help. They figured out the next step. And yeah, there, there aren't two, I guess maybe some people called event help. I haven't seen their testimonials. Maybe you can check them out. Yeah, Matt, I mean, it might've worked. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but generally, like the cool thing is you can take the next step and the next step is um, what, so a lot of times in this talk or on the Mission Daily, we reference like the frontier. And so what we're talking about is you can get closer and closer to areas where fewer and fewer people are fishing. But but I think that part of it is like the mental blockade, right? Like the yeah. mental barrier to what a lot of time for the past, like human history, course of human history, where people just don't think that they can make something 
they don't think whether it's they have the ability or the they don't have the credentials, they don't have the right degree, they don't have whatever it is to make something and actually build it into something that's like a technology that changes, you know, 7 billion people's lives. Like, sure. But, but I think that that and part of the point of this book is very optimistic in the sense that like what he's saying is you you can do that. Yeah. Right? And everyone listening is f- familiar with struggle or situations where it's impossible to get a job where you have to send out 30 resumes and things like that. It's just, it's not... Um, you know, we're not saying that everything should be effortless and everyone should just get what they want. Um, but rather, you know, it's an exciting time because you can really find and take the time to invest in figuring out where the frontier is. So should we jump into chapter five? Yeah, yeah, let's do. We're kind of jumping around a little bit now, but. Okay, so this is really ex- interesting about valuing businesses because when we're online and someone has a billion dollar business or someone uh, has a company that IPOs, that's what we'll see on online if we're reading news or anything like that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the person's uh, a billionaire. It doesn't even mean that they have access or they're even liquid for um, a lot of money. Uh, they might be wealthy uh, or they might not. That's something where the investors, they might own a lot of the company or you know a private equity group does or something like that. Um, and so it's important to understand how businesses are valued because this is going to be whether you want to invent something or do a book, this is how people are going to value your idea in the early days. And it's important that you learn how to value your own idea so you can figure out how to effectively capture the value because we talked about capturing value, but that's something that is, uh, it's on you know everybody that's listening, they have to figure out how to do that. And that's something that's not easy because the second you do have something that's successful, there's a lot of people that want to get involved. There's a lot of people that want some of the value from that. And it's going to be on you to determine um, the right amounts of incentive and value and equity and everything like that. uh, So everyone can have the right amount of skin in the game. And it's not an easy thing. So that's kind of what this chapter is about. So uh, the value of businesses is based on what their projected earnings are in the future. So with the PayPal example, eBay bought PayPal because they had a rough projection of what the value would be in the future. And they saw it was going to work out really well. So eBay bought PayPal for about 1.5 billion. Does anybody out there know what PayPal is worth independently now? No right. idea. About 100 billion. They're, uh, they they IPO'd. So um, I, I think they yeah they spun out from eBay and IPO'd on their own. Um, but that's just uh, a great simple example to illustrate that point. Um, you can also look at Twitter. Uh, so Twitter's I don't know 25 billion market cap or something like that, um, and it's about 12 13 times the market cap of the New York Times. So investors are betting that the value of Twitter is going to keep going up in the future, whereas organizations like the New York Times might not be so lucky. That's, that's so wild. Isn't that it's, it's really wild to think about. That was that. a good purchase by the, uh, the folks at uh, eBay. Yeah, no kidding. So here are some characteristics of monopolies, or if you don't like that word, uh, ideas. So these are these, just think of these as your ideas for books, novels, like you know, whatever it is you want to create, your invention. Um, So they have excellent branding, proprietary technology. And remember, that isn't like IT technology. That could be just a system or a collection of secrets that you found on how to do more with less in a specific place where there's not a lot of competition. Um, Monopolies have network effects and they, they typically dominate a small niche and expand outward. In the case of PayPal, they started with eBay power sellers. That was a very, very small market, but that was their target market that they completely monopolized. They served them so well that it just was, uh, yeah, that's 
the market they dominated initially. And then once they did, they had a really strong proof of concept that they took to investors and other people and were able to raise the capital they needed to expand outward and eventually you know, become ubiquitous everywhere. Um, so another a great yeah. way of thinking about monopolies is to think about a product that is synonymous. The name of the product is synonymous with the name. So like Kleenex <laughs> used to have a monopoly. Yeah, that's or that's great. Uh, you know, like, oh, go Google it. Yep. It's like things like that where the name is synonymous. It's like they have obviously ridiculously good branding because people call it that. Um, usually that's proprietary in some way. Tons of people know about it and they expanded in some, you know, you don't know the backstory of how Kleenex was created. I don't either. Probably, you know, I think it's, are they J&J or P&G? Anyways. I don't know. Um, and then they have, you know, scaled products all over the country or wherever it is um, and how they're making their profits. But companies like that have a monopoly over, now they might not anymore. Like Xerox, I don't believe has, you know, I don't know if there is a big market for <laughs> for for copy, or copy machines or anything like that. But back in the day, they did. And you could see just like that, like as quickly as something, a monopoly could be created for an industry or a market, some other company could come and create something that's completely disruptive that destroys that industry. Yeah. And that creative destruction is happening faster and faster. So the average life lifespan of uh, Fortune 500, I think, was... Uh, a while ago, it was like 30 years and it's already uh, fell to like 15 years now. So That's the average, crazy. and I said fortune, I think I'm, I meant S&P 500, um, has a lifespan of about 15 years, which is very, very fast. Um, like maybe it's, yeah, too, too short, but either way. So, and one more thing here about that is a characteristic of monopolies uh, or a good monopoly business is they have uh, good economies of scale. So um, that basically, basically just means like all their financials and all of the, uh, the product and margins and everything work out well. So what are some, who, who typically builds monopolies? So when you have that uh, small group or of friends or the team that you're building uh, or you're thinking about that might be able to help you out with whatever it is you want to do, um, these are some characteristics that you can look for or maybe some uh, rules that you can apply to uh, help get building uh, faster and then capturing some of the value that you create. So monopolies typically start small. So every startup is initially small. And every monopoly uh, eventually owns a large share of its market. These aren't always markets that exist. So often they are new markets that are brand new. Case in point, uh, so Google, um, you know, the online search advertising market, uh, Google didn't create that, but they did enter that at a time where I think there were eight other search companies. They won. They had the the best product by by far, and they monopolized a new new market. And so online advertising is a very, very big market. I think it's like $495 billion globally, but the market for online search is a bit smaller and Google just just owns that. I think about 95% of Google's profits now are still driven from uh, AdWords and their online search. And then so how they kind of escape that monopoly is that they develop tons of other products that compete in a you know, variety of different industries and things like that. Yeah. And now they're making bets on where the new frontiers will be in the new markets. And so all the companies in inside Alphabet, which is Google's parent holding company, are making uh, big, what they call moonshot bets to, again, find the frontier and create and open up new markets like driverless cars and things like that. So um, so one more idea for you when you're uh, building your monopoly for this weekend is to uh, 
dominate the, the niche of people and really, really get to know who you're serving and then worry about expanding outward. Um, along the way, uh, distraction is ever present. It's a phenomenon that you know we all know <laughs> really well. And you have you have to uh, just avoid that by whatever whatever way you can. And on top, there's distraction, there's disruption, and you just have to stay on top of the uh, the latest trends, but also stay really really focused. And then the final most important point here about um, existing businesses. Oh, and by the way, so in the book in zero to one, uh, Peter defines um, monopoly is actually the condition of any successful business. So you might be a local coffee shop and in order to survive and stay around, you're going to have to have a monopoly. And that isn't a, uh, you know, it's not like business is war type thing, but it is something where you're just going to have to serve people, delight them, make them happy, know their names, remember their names. That is a type of technology and system that your competitors aren't going to replicate. And you, for everyone listening out there, you can probably think of just how many times you've either gone to a local store or something like, do they know your name? Do they know this or that? So there's a lot of opportunities that are local to you right now where you can do just a little bit more and then start to build that uh, collection of secrets and uh, ways to serve people. Yeah. And there's plenty of ways to have a monopoly on something like you could have a monopoly on the best chicken sandwich in Oakland. And that's like a huge, you know, Bake Sale Betty's is famous for that for all of this listening from around the world that have no idea where Bakes Old Betty's in Oakland is, but um, they have like the best chicken sandwich. They're open for, or they used to be open. I think it was like just Tuesdays from like two to six or something like that. And that was it. And they would have a line out the door because that was the thing that they did. And they've been around for a long time, but you could have the fastest, you know, the fastest pizza delivery in you know, the city or whatever it is. Like there's plenty of monopolies around those sort of things. And if you are the person who is top of mind for people when they want that thing, then you're going to win a large market share of that, which is actually really interesting. So um, this is a side note. So Andrew Chen was in his, uh, from Andrews and Horace was, had a really interesting post the other day about these, the, why scooters are so important and why they're getting these crazy valuations. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who may or may not know, there's uh, what's affinitively called the scooter wars is raging between <laughs> uh, two companies. One's called uh, bird and one is called lime. And basically they have these motorized scooters that are in just some, like Uber and Lyft. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. Just like Uber and Lyft. And the reason why he, um, hypothesizes this is so valuable is because when you're the first company in mind to get anywhere, it's extremely valuable. So it's like if you are the first thing that you're going to do to get from A to B, if you're thinking of a scooter, like a scooter company, that means you can create products that end up getting them the place that they want to go the fastest. You don't need to always be a scooter company. It's just the place that is front of mind. So being able to be that is really, really valuable. Um, Similarly, the place that is the cheapest, like that might be the city bus for now. So companies need to figure out how they can be cheaper than the city bus or in a more efficient manner or something like that. But being front of mind is like the key for, and it's something he, again, like implicitly talks about, but doesn't it? doesn't exactly say, but those are the sort of things that allow you to have um, what, you know, he calls a monopoly. Yeah. So we just had a, uh, a really great, great question here. Um, 
question and comment and story from uh, I think Sid Sid. Sorry if I'm butchering your name here, um, but the thing that surprised uh, her the most was that small minorities often achieve disproportionate results. Um, and then she said she goes on to say like she wasn't that really you know really surprised by it, um, but just surprised that it's not an accepted fact. And she tells a story about uh, when firemen came to her school when she was a young kid, they told them that the best way to survive a fire in a burning theater was not to rush for the exits, but to go towards the fire, through the fire, out the exit, near the screen. Don't go with the crowd, take the risk and run the opposite direction. So being the uh, the minority there and not following the herd. So that's something, you know, we're not advocating to run uh, or jump through the fire, but to consider those uh, paths out as maybe viable paths and it's something that you'll have to choose in this situation. But that's a great real world example where you don't want to go with the herd. Herd-like behavior is very dangerous and it's, um, yeah, something that can, uh, there's a quote in here about um, crowds. There's not really wisdom in crowds, but just madness. Um, and that was written by Nietzsche before he went mad, which is the caveat that, okay. <laughs> that Peter includes. So I, again, you have to yeah take that with a grain of salt. But but it, yeah, and she said it's metaphorical. But but it's a great point, and I think it goes back to his the question of why he says a truth that very few people agree with you on. Because if everybody believes it, it's like oh yeah, of course. And this is the classic, uh, you know, Henry Ford uh, said, you know, famously that um, if he listened to everybody, uh, then he would have built a faster horse, right? So. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where people don't necessarily know what they want. Uh, Same thing with like PayPal. It was like, like money plus email. Like that's crazy. Like we can't send money over the internet. Like there's no way it's going to be whatever. And like Airbnb, same sort of thing. Like people are going to stay, I'm going to stay on somebody's couch and I'm just going to like, there's no way people are going to do that. So sometimes uh, conventional wisdom is just that it's conventional, but the early adopters that use your product are the people who are going to push the boundaries of like what is the new normal yeah. and then the long tail as they say of everybody else who will follow in their footsteps love it so ian scalzo says what's up ian uh i think peter's thoughts on definite and indefinite optimism and pessimism were the most worldview changing sections of the book uh, if you had to place yourself in one of those four categories which would it be and how does it affect your life if you're comfortable talking about that on the internet <laughs> Lucky for you, Scalzo, I am. And so definite optimism is something that I, I think is uh, very, very interesting. Um, it's something that um, I was just trying to paste this here, but Facebook doesn't allow that. Um, so this is a, a four quadrant chart that uh, Peter presents in the book where you have uh, optimism and pessimism on one side, and then you have definite and indefinite up here. And so you get four quadrants and uh, definite optimism is something that defined the United States in the period from about 1950 to the 1960s. Uh, and then indefinite optimism is something that Peter Fields defines the U.S. from 1982 to the present. Um, and then on the definite pessimism side, uh, Peter places like China at the present. And then in the indefinite pessimistic side, Peter places uh, Europe at the present. So that's basically just saying like in the uh, post-World War II uh, you know, celebrations here in America where the baby boomers uh, were just yeah dominating the world, essentially, um, there was a lot of optimism. There were people thought that we were not just going to be going to the moon, but we were going to have space bases and lunar colonies. And one of the people that I talked to this weekend for a long, long time was uh, Robert Zubrin, who has a book called The Case for Mars. Uh, he's a U.S. Air Force test pilot, uh, among a bunch of different uh, other things. And I was just 
peppering him with tons and tons of questions about what was it like back then. And so often we just accept what we've encountered in history books or things like that. But he talks about his time at NASA uh, in the period of the like late late sixties and you know up you know during the moon landing and everything like that. And it was like, of course we're going to have space bases. Of course we're going to be going to the moon and Mars. Of course we're going to terraform Mars. Like that's <laughs> that's what we're working on. That's what everybody was like excited about. And it's it's kind of terrifying to think like what happened along the way to make everyone just forget about that was it uh so i propose and scalzo has another question here um i'll go back to his original one i'm the king of tangents sorry sorry scalzo um but scalzo asked um so first of all where do you place yourself on the definite and indefinite optimism uh section here um but also what important truth do you believe that few people would agree with you on and so mine is that uh television is the reason why we that uh, definite optimism was just crushed and uh, ceased, ceased to be. Um, television kind of created the idea that everything was already happening and you just had to sit back and kind of watch the future, literally. And that's one thing and we could yeah, dive into a bunch of others, but that's the pretty tame one for, uh, for the podcast here. And I definitely placed myself in the definite optimism camp um, for survival's sake and for, uh, yeah, for our posterity's sake. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll say one too here. Um that uh, one of the things that we kind of touched on earlier that I think the term wannapreneur is really like has this negative is um, has a negative connotation and people are like, oh, there's all these people like faking that they're entrepreneurs that are going around to like startup events or all this or, you know, or people who are just trying to get on Shark Tank so they can, you know, get their idea seen by lots of people. And my my thing that I believe is like that's all very positive behavior because if building things that help humanity is seen as cool that's a really good thing for all of us and I think a lot of people see those people as like kind of borderline like maybe charlatans or people who are like uh, attention like like want attention or things like that oh yeah in all of those scenarios for every 10 people uh, or for every one person that is like out there doing that there's 10 people that are actually doing things working hard and actually trying to build things for the future. So um, those are just two things that uh, thinking of tangents, Holly. Thank Holly you. Hansen, yeah, I'm, between Chad and I, if we, we there's no tangent we don't like. Um, but but I think that that's that's one of the things that that I believe that I think gets a really bad rap um, is that like, hey, if we need to have some uh, like the the market separates that stuff. Don't worry about that. Like, don't worry about what other people are doing. Just build stuff yourself. And like, don't worry about who's being fake or not fake or who's like, whatever, none of that. Again, I think that's something that TV is like directly, directly led us to is where, you know, you're in an environment where you can comment and just make snap judgments on everything without the context that goes with it. And that's really, really tough to appropriately, uh, you know, how how are you ever going to know what someone went through if they're on shark tank like pitching something that person might have gone through just complete hell to get where they're at and so um and and like a quick piece on that charlatan stuff too because i think this is an important point as well and we've talked about we talk about this all the time at the mission that like your book is being written every second of every day and that at the end it's like all of the things, all of the shortcuts, all of the things that people did to get ahead, all of the Bernie Madoffs, all of those type of people that like, you know, stole and did all of those crazy things or like 
we're charlatans, like they will be exposed. Like I believe that, I mean, I believe that they will. And most of the time that stuff comes out. And if you spend your time like worrying about that sort of stuff instead of like building things, it's probably not that good of good of an idea. And the other thing too is people get so worried about someone selling a product that they bought that didn't do exactly what it was. And there's a saying that I heard, which I love is we don't ring the bell, ring the sales bell on sales. We ring it on renewals. The thing that's great in the business world is if someone is like full of full of S or family friendly stream here, but if someone is full, full of it, guess what? Like people aren't going to buy their product over time and they're definitely not going to keep buying their product. So if you got, you know, if you're worried about those sort of things, just don't be worried about it. But that's another tangent. All right, let's uh, yeah keep rolling. Um, so chapter six, this is really fun. Uh, the chapter title is you are not a lottery ticket. And when we think about the first way to apply this to what we're talking about right now is when people think about startups or technology companies, they'll often say, well, it's risky because most of them fail. Well, what most companies do is they act exactly the same. And the handful of them, the small minority that do survive and escape competition and find the frontier are the companies that do things radically, radically differently. Um, So when you analyze a statistical sample, it's very tempting to say, well, everyone that is starting a startup is going to be included in this sample. That's a useless, useless metric right off the bat. Uh, If you want to study things, you can study the success stories, or you can study the, you can lump the failures in with the successes and then allow the failures to water down the lessons that might be learned from the successes. And, uh, you know, so that's, I, I think, just really, really important. And that's a small step towards um, the second you th- you gravitate too much towards statistics and use those to make your life decisions or choose what you decide to do or career paths and things like that, um, you can really fall into the trap of um, just basically paralyzing yourself with indecision, with uh, fear of the future. And you start treating yourself as a statistic. If, on the other hand, if you treat yourself as a uh, an individual, if you study the uh, best examples of the people who have done what you want to do, you're in a completely different league. Um, so yeah, yeah, I totally agree, and I love uh, I love the idea of rejecting the unjust tyranny of chance. Like I love that it's so good. It's like stop pretending that chance that your life is ruled by chance that anything like that is happening, and at just, least explore it. You know. Like, what do you have to lose to exploring the idea that you have full agency over everything? And if you don't, that you could gain it with a little bit more work, a little bit more struggle. Um, so we're about we're at about 45 minutes. Um, feel free to continue to throw questions into the question box. Um, and, uh, you know, as always, you can tweet us at the Mission HQ if you have other questions after this, after listening. Um, you I think can listen to us on the Mission Daily. Yeah. You can let I, us I think- know. This send emails is a good place to take a couple more questions, call it quits, and um, maybe we can run through the extra uh, chapters in the book for the Mission Daily. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do part two of this uh, on the Mission Daily because we did not realize we were going to get through half the book in an hour. So Awesome. Yeah, so for everyone listening, if you have any more questions, uh, leave them in the comments and we'll get them in the next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.